I wasn't going to say that, Mary, in case it was ru <laughs> rubbing into grants, but never mind. Uh, we, were, we were expecting 26, but hey-ho, there we are. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to the Greater Glasgow meeting with uh, Grant Toms to talk about lobbying. Um, and I've always had the view that uh, the yes groups, once we have won the referendum, that the yes groups should or will turn into lobbying groups to get what we want, not what the politicians think we want. Um, so as Marlon has said, it's been recorded. And if you want to ask a question, hang on to it until the end and indicate it in the chat, and then we'll take your uh, questions in turn. That's the simplest way of doing it. And I'll hand you over to Mary for a short introduction. Okay. Um, I think it's um, fair to say that Grant Toms has had a very varied career. Um, currently, he's part-time lecturer in public relations at the University of Stirling and runs his own communications consultancy, working with social enterprises and small businesses. Um, even more relevantly, he used to be the Vice Chair for Political Engagement and the Board of Scottish Training Federation, where he led on the Scottish Training Federation's involvement with politicians, MPs, MSPs and councillors. And before that, he was Press and Parliamentary Officer for Scottish Renewables. So if anybody knows about lobbying politicians to get what you want, I think it's Grant Toms. On you go, Grant. Still muted. They're still muted, Grant. Yeah, I've been unmuted. Um, so thank you very much for that, Mary and Alan, um, and to everybody for coming along. Um, I wasn't too sure where you were going to go with your introduction there, Mary. I was getting a bit <laughs> concerned as to whether uh, you would drag up um, days in Springburn SMP and things we got up to um, and then cast them in my face. But it's, um, <clears throat> I'm glad we'll probably have opportunities later to talk about stuff like that. Uh, I have got um, kind of like three, four slides that um, I was going to use as a prompt. So do I need permission to share my screen or can I do that directly? Uh, uh, you do need permission. I just need to find out how to give you permission. Um, that's the trouble with having the person whose account it is not here. Right, right. The um, right. The, the, the host has disabled the participants' screen sharing, so it's down the bottom. Should be down the bottom where it says screen share. Yeah. Right. And should be able to put it there. I think it's coming up because that's where the screen sharing. Because the host has disabled it, it means you can't. Yeah. Share. Right. So I, 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 wasn't, I how do I undisable it, uh, Robert? I, I didn't disable <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, no, there's a thing. So I the, thought there was a security thing, but I don't seem to happen there. Should be in the under the more bit, the three ampersands. Okay, have a look. Yeah. Hang I, on. You try more. You go to click on participants. Yep. And then Click my name under more. Think it's uh, okay, okay, okay. Uh... He says, I'm not a big user of Zoom, I must admit. You attend Zoom meetings, but you really organize them. 
Yeah, I, I can't see a way of clicking. Oh, yeah, I've got it now. Hang on. Um, make make co-host. Does that, will that do? That would do it, yeah. That will do mm -hmm. it, right. Right, let's see. You should, yep, that should give yep. you, yep. Okay, sorry for the... No, that's quite all right. Let's go to your slideshow there. Oh, right, there we go. Well, that's fine. <clears throat> you had the introductory one. Um, so I, I wasn't 100% sure where you wanted to go with this. So I've tried to keep this as a um, two or three slides just to kick off uh, discussion and questions. Uh, I mean, also that I can um, not stress my voice too much. Um, I had my first day of testing negative for COVID, and but I still got a sore throat and cough. So um, apologies if uh, people could struggle with what I'm saying. Um, hopefully we'll get through this um, as uh, communicating this as well as I possibly can do under the circumstances. So lobbying, um, as someone who's been a lobbyist for, I would say for good causes and for some that were one or two that were definitely for profit um, and therefore what some people might see is a bit more dubious. Um, it's been an interesting life and journey uh, in the kind of world of what we call communications. Um, ultimately, uh, people, you know, the, the kind of a view taken that in a what we call a pluralist liberal democracy, everybody should have the right to try to influence, i.e., to, to lobby people, um, whether you're an individual, a community group, or uh, a business or a group of. Uh, organizations from different backgrounds, public, private, uh, third sector. Um, and essentially, it's all about trying to ensure that um, through our democratic processes, uh, governments, governance makes the best decision possible. Um, so what I'm displaying here is a little diagram of how I would um, uh, advise a third sector community group on how to go about lobbying, how to basically create a plan um, and um, understand how to work, not just on a particular issue that's come up and you want to address it straight away, but also how on a regular basis organisations should think about their um, how to deal with um, stakeholders, how to deal with the, the public affairs side of their responsibilities. Um, and a lot of that starts with understanding what are the issues that are at play for you and what type of things could potentially impact your organisation, um, how might it, um, what the likely kind of scenarios for how it might play out, what would be your solution to this particular issue. Um, so what you call that, you know, issue analysis it might involve doing a good bit of research around um, what, are, what are the current policies just now, What who are offering competing policies, uh, who's going to make decisions about this, who can influence that decision, both uh, in terms of whether it's a political decision to be made by a minister, uh, or whether it's an executive decision that would be made by civil servants, or a quango, um, or parliament sometimes, although rarely is it actually a parliamentary decision, but it could be if it was about changing laws. 
Um, so you want to kind of make sense of who are the decision makers, how does a decision get made, uh, who influences that type of decision, who might be your allies, who are likely to be competing for that decision, but not in a way that you would like it. Um, uh, make sense of that and then come to an idea about, okay, if we were to um, go forward here and try and influence um, their decision in our favour, let's create a plan, let's look at um, working out what is it we're going, we want to happen, who is it we want to target, what do we want to say that's going to grab their attention and take notes of us, um, and ultimate then, and who, who would be our, our pals, our allies, our co, our, you know, um, who might potentially be in a coalition with us, uh, and who are likely to be our opponents, what do they know, what do they, are they saying, and how can we counter what they're saying. And we put that in together into what we call a lobbying plan and um, put it into action, so to speak. Now, lobbying itself is not done in a vacuum. Um, there's been numerous um, issues with lobbying, and I'm going to come back uh, in the next slide. Um, but in the Scottish Parliament, uh, around about 2011, uh, well, sorry, take it, go back to the very start of say the Scottish Parliament, using this as a, an arena that um, probably done most work in. The Scottish Parliament in its 22 years or 23 years of existence um, basically kicked off with a lobbying scandal. Um, do we all remember Lobbygate in 1999, 2000? <clears throat> this was when uh, there was a sting operation by the Observer uh, newspaper um, where they sent in some, a journalist as a sheikh, um, all dressed up in Arab gear, um, to speak to a public a lobbying agency called Public Affairs Europe. And this was uh, the public affairs arm of a PR agency called uh, BT Media, you're still going. Public Affairs Europe employed Kevin Reid, who um, this feels a bit like a history lesson as well, was the son of the then Secretary of State for Scotland, John Reid. Um, and I think another guy was, um, oh my goodness, um, he now owns a huge public relations agency called Big PR, Big Partnership. Um, I've forgotten his name actually, Alan is his first name. Um, and they went into a discussion with this sheikh promising the world, you know, oh, don't worry about things, miss, you know, my dad's the Secretary of State for Scotland, he'll get you this, and of course, I've been heavily involved in Labour politics, Kevin Reid basically did most of the talking, and did most of the embarrassment, so in this kind of videoed sting, they promised the earth, they implied lots of, I can open doors, I can influence, I can get you access, whatever you need, we'll sort it, and of course, Jack McConnell used to be one of our directors in Public Affairs Europe, and he's now the Minister of Finance. So, you know, you, you know, there's no problem here um, with a, a Labour Lib Dem executive. We can sort this. And it became a big scandal. And it was the first test of the Scottish Parliament in terms of um, how is it going to react to accusations that you're not different from Westminster? You're just exactly the same. Look what they're doing. You've got all these people in here promising um, to open doors for uh, people with money, basically. And um, <clears throat> one of the things I've done in my academic life, is, which is only about four or five years old, folks, it's not huge, uh, <clears throat> is that in a piece of uh, a research 
I did for my degree um, was to look at the evolution of lobbying from 1979 to, 19, to 2019. I interviewed Trisha Marek, um, who, as you will know, a former SNP, MSP, former presiding officer. But at the time of Lobbygate was the vice convener of the Standards Committee. And Trisha, um, I'm, not going to, I'm not saying anything uh, um, breaking confidences, because she's talked about this on the record on a number of occasions. Um, Trisha talks about how Lobbygate was an example of how the committees of the new Scottish Parliament suddenly had to realise we have to, to stand up for ourselves. Um, essentially, the civil servants were saying, there's not a lot we can do here, folks. You've, you've not got powers to do anything about this. But Trisha's looking out the window type thing. As a former lobbyist herself, although she doesn't like that term, when she worked for Shelter Scotland, she was used to going down to Westminster and lobbying for homelessness organisations, making sure that the uh, money that came for homelessness through the Scottish office was you know, guaranteed every year, etc. Um, so she had an idea about you know, what's involved in this. Um, but as a politician, someone with a bit of political moose as well, she recognised that journalists were queuing at the door waiting to ask questions about what are you going to do? How are you going to sort this? And um, the convener of the committee at that time was the Lib Dem or the North East Scotland one. Um, so West Concarne, you know, I've forgotten his name as well. He, an absolute pain, um, got back into Parliament in the last term, but then um, didn't get re-elected this time. Um, he didn't want to end about this either. He'd been taken in by the executive advice that there's not a lot you can do. And Trisha basically stood her ground and said, we cannot leave this committee room today without a plan for what we're going to do to grab the powers to do something about this. So... They did an inquiry and they found that basically that uh, what the lobby gate exposed was um, potential um, misuse of political connections to gain access and influence. But most of it was bravado more than actually rules have been broken. But what it did show was that they need to tighten this up. And they went into a big, a couple of years later, a big report suggesting that you need to tighten up rules. We maybe need to look at creating a register of lobbyists and um, people who are trying to influence uh, parliamentarians in the government. But actually, Parliament didn't, they just dropped it. The Labour uh, Liberal executive that had the majority in, in that 1999-2003 period dropped it, just didn't took no action on this at all. Um, SNP weren't very strong on this either. Trisha, to her credit, was the strongest um, probably in Parliament at that time about we need to do things about this. Um, but there wasn't the appetite to bring in a law at that point. They didn't think that things had got so bad that it was required legislation. Fast forward um, to the 2000, well, the end of the New Labour government, 2007, 2010, under Gordon Brown, there was numerous uh, Westminster New Labour um, scandals and um, the most famous one towards the end was Taxi for Hire which was basically two or three Labour cabinet ministers who knew their term was coming to an end Patricia Hewitt, um, Alan Milburn and I think there's a couple of others who were caught again in stings promising you know 
even if I'm out of office, I can get you back in to influence the next government, um, etc. Because we know our way around Whitehall as much as Westminster. We know who, the, who, who to contact, who makes decisions, etc. So this was becoming a big issue, both in Westminster and in the devolved parliaments, about how do we make sure that um, there isn't undue influence taking place here. And uh, Neil Findlay, who many of you may know, was a Labour MSP for the Lothians. Um, uh, he tabled a, a member's bill um, around the idea of regulating lobbyists in 2011, partly in response to what had been happening down there. Seems a bit odd, you might think. Um, it was an SNP minority government um, at the time when he placed it. Uh, and sorry, tell I, it was actually the first 2011 we had the SNP majority government. <clears throat> but we were, you know, we usually focused on uh, the referendum. And again, this wasn't really coming up on our radar as something that required legislation. And the only thing that really pushed Neil Finlay to table this was that he employed somebody who used to work for a group called Transparency International who have campaigned for lobbying regulation. So he let his staff member do most of the running on this. It gained some momentum. There was quite a few stories came out in the Scottish press that kind of reinforced, actually maybe Neil Finlay has a point here. And then in 2013, Neil, uh, Joe Fitzpatrick, who was the parliamentary minister, sat down with all the public affairs professional groups and said, is this an issue here? And essentially what we all agreed on was that, and I was a member of CRPR, I was actually a member of all four public, uh, public affairs uh, professional associations at the time. We all agreed we'd have a problem with regulation. But what, what we wanted was a level playing field that everybody was covered by it. So whether you worked in-house for a company, if you worked as a consultant or within an agency that does consultancy or you know, a hired hand, um, or you worked in the third sector, that we should all be covered by the same rules um, uh, because there was everybody was trying to use influence in one way or another. Um, so Joe Fitzpatrick um, basically um, moved that the Scottish Government would take over the Neil Findlay Bill and after uh, the referendum, uh, the lobbying, um, Scotland lobbying uh, bill came forward uh, but it basically decided that the, uh, there would be a, a comprehensive one, but it would only be people who talked to MSPs, ministers, and the permanent secretary. Um, and that's all. You just have to lobby when you met with them on a one-to-one -one basis. So if you telephoned them, that was okay. That wasn't covered. And of course, now with um, the pandemic and the vast use of online meetings, none of that's covered either. So um, it created the lobbying register. <clears throat> um, it required, you know, quarterly um, uh, notification of when you met an MSP or a, a minister or the permanent secretary. Uh, and just briefly to say, what were you talking to them about? Um, and you can now go through the lobbying register, register and drill down into all the people that have um, noted things down. <clears throat> but again, one of the things that happened with my research was that a lot of lobbyists, particularly private sector lobbyists, people like Charlotte Street Partners, who um, Andrew Wilson and Malcolm Robertson ran as probably the top corporate lobbyists in Scotland at the moment, um, they very much um, describe how they changed their whole 
way of operating so that instead of actually going to meet ministers and MSPs on behalf of a, a big um, corporation, they trained and advised the corporations how they would then carry out uh, meetings with ministers and MSPs. <clears throat> so actually, what I was trying to show in my research was <clears throat> the legislation wasn't about the individual um, as a lobbyist, um, as a professional, it was about still the organisations of individuals who were trying to create the change. That um, as long as they, you know, they needed to be focused on much more than the individuals who were doing it. Uh, and the Act supposedly um, does that. <clears throat> so it, it, there is a form of lobbying regulation there. There hasn't been any major scandals come out of this. Um, it shows to a certain extent it's robust. It could go further. Um, and there's actually uh, likely to be legislation that will extend the lobbying uh, rules to include online meetings and electronic communication. Uh, and that we think that will help that as well. Um, but that's about as much as it's done in Scotland. And we think that's probably that's done a lot to actually prevent um, any kind of uh, lobbying scandals, unlike in Westminster, where uh, a registrar of consulting lobbyists, i.e. people who are paid almost as a hired hand to go in and talk to a minister, they have, they've, got, they've got a very small register at Westminster and they've still had numerous problems uh, in Westminster. Although a lot of the problems at Westminster are not actually by people who are hired as a lobbyist. They're usually people, politicians, who think they can become a lobbyist or friends of politicians. I don't know if you all remember when Liam Fox was the defence minister and he had a friend who he hired as a, or gave access to his office called uh, somebody Warity. I, I remember his name, his name, I don't remember his first name. Um, and then this guy was going around talking to defence companies saying, I can get you into the defence secretary, he made a fortune out of it. And Liam Fox, when this all got exposed, had to resign as defence secretary. Um, and that kind of um, leads me into talking about um, people who are in what we call political public relations, public affairs, lobbying, should be a member of an associate, professional association. Under the Scottish lobbying rules, uh, you have to adhere to a code of conduct of a professional body in order to meet with a, a minister or an MSP. So that's one of the conditions as well about the rules. So you can imagine code of conduct tend to talk about the ethics, <clears throat> try to somehow embed some kind of morality within what's going on. Although, frankly, I always take the view that uh, never confuse values and models with ethics. Um, ethics are just rules by which people think they have to be conducted, and they will push them to the bounds of it as much as possible. That still doesn't mean to say it's moral, moralistic. <clears throat> and uh, it still doesn't mean that it's necessarily done with good strong values at heart. But as with um, most professional bodies, if not all professional bodies, you'll have some kind of code of conduct, code of ethics. It tries to uh, instill some kind of uh, essence of you know the values and the morals we expect under which you conduct your business or your profession. 
ความเชื่อ connections, their money, uh, resources, uh, we can call it you know, in sociological terms, social capital, um, they use this influence to get decisions made that other people are not able to, um, therefore there is no level playing field because they don't have that, um, you know, didn't go to the same school, didn't go to the same university. Um, They're not necessarily. Um, they didn't work with somebody who's become a minister. We talk about the political decision makers, or they haven't got a million pounds. Or you know, let's go back to if anybody's ever been to a party political conference, particularly the SNP one, where for a number of years Heathrow Airport um, had what was called Heathrow Lounge, um, which was a lovely place for MSPs, MPs, and a select few. To go and mingle and drink your coffee and have your pastries, and usually used by lobbyists to meet um, parliamentarians in a little, you know, little private area away from <coughs> the unwashed delegates of the SNP. Um, <coughs> now that um, that whole process Heathrow went through over a, a number of years, trying to lobby for um, the third terminal, they spent thirty-five million pounds. To get a decision that approved eventually Terminal Three. Now, as it happens, it may eventually get overturned. It still seems to have been um, uh, up in the air as to whether, or sorry, it was refused. Now, um, Boris Johnson suggested it might come back again. So, who knows if ever that will be reopened? But they spent a lot of money um, trying to influence not just uh, directly elected people, but. Uh, In many ways, trying to they would send up the aviation minister for the UK Parliament would come up and try to instill in MSPs that if uh, if you supported the, the expansion of Heathrow, that will be a number of slots guaranteed to come to Scotland, mm -hmm. um, and Heathrow will become your big hub and therefore you know help your trade etc. So that you know you had corporates um, and you had ministers who were kind of. Supporting the decisions they'd made, and they were acting almost as lobbying lobbyists within um, political spheres of devolved nature as well. Everybody's kind of playing. All these political actors are all playing to try and get people to make decisions, to support decisions that um, are in their interest. Although those interests are not always very transparent, and that's kind of where I'm getting that from Andrews. There has been unethical practices. I've touched on some of them before. Um, some of them are done by um, by lobbyists. Um, some of the most famous ones are done through stings. Uh, there was a company called Bell Pottinger, and, and big international one based in London. That um, was started by Sir Tim Bell, and um, I forget Pottinger's name. Uh, he's still going. Um, and they they were caught in a sting, promising again access to. David Cameron's government, um, but it was again fairly, you know, wasn't what you would expect a lobbyist to do. But it was bravado. It didn't make any rules. But eventually, Bill Pottinger got caught out when they created a, a grass, uh, an artificial grassroots organisation in South Africa. 
So that's what we, this is what we call astroturfing, a fake community organisation or fake grassroots organisation. And it was caught um, undermining South African government using misinformation, disinformation, so basic form of propaganda that was heavily um, undemocratic um, uh, and actually almost like trying to undo um, the good work that the South African government was doing. It got exposed in the newspaper and eventually many of the clients of Bell Pottinger left them and they, their company collapsed <clears throat> through these unethical practices. They were members of the PRCA, one of the professional bodies I made, uh, pointed out earlier, and they were expelled from the PRCA as well. So it kind of showed that um, the professional bodies need to flex their peer pressure muscles by telling agencies you can't do this, you know, and if you're caught, we'll chuck you out. And you might think that, oh, I don't need to be a member of you, but just watch your reputational damage you'll get if you're not a member of us or that you get expelled or disciplined by our disciplinary procedures, etc. And the last bit I want to talk about is a Revolving Door. This has been a source of numerous research uh, looking at well-being, uh, and that is senior politicians, senior civil servants um, going from their public elected role or public office holder role into uh, <clears throat> public affairs lobbying agencies or lobbying roles within um, trade bodies, within big corporations. Um, <clears throat> and almost instantly, although quite often there's usually a period of time between leaving office and taking up one of these roles, sometimes a year, sometimes two years, <clears throat> but essentially going directly into companies that they used to work or regulate um, or make decisions about. So they could come straight from public office almost into that corporation, tell them exactly, this is how we'll make this decision, this is how you can change it. Um, and that is an area of concern um, for anybody in, uh, looking at political science around that a sense of an undue influence, but over specific people, um, public office holders, whether they're elected or um, employed, moving from that role directly into uh, private sector um, and working directly for people that they previously may have regulated. Because the, the angle is they could likely have made a decision knowing that they could get employed on huge salaries in the private sector for the organizations that they are about to make a decision or they're about to make a regulatory framework that will impact on that type of organization. And if I give you a small anecdote of you know, how this kind of works in another way, in 1995-96, when Scotland went through local government reorganization, the, um, the assessor for Lothian Regional Council um, redid Murrayfield uh, as a sports ground and basically put Murrayfield rates up uh, threefold. <clears throat> he took retirement as part of the local government reorganisation and within three months was a private consultant going back to Murrayfield, Scottish Rugby, saying, you've got a big problem with your rates. <laughs> I've set it up and I can actually now work as a consultant to help you undo it. Um, if you want to employ me. So I know, you know, I heard that when I used to work in local government at that time. Um, so I know, you know, these things have been going on, not just at high level in the UK or potentially Scottish government, 
but in local government as well. This is an issue around governance and power um, and how you um, make decisions, etc. So that's kind of roughly my overview. I hope I haven't gone on too long, but it might be a starting point for any discussions. Um, I'm going to stop sharing that so it becomes less of a distraction. Well, thanks for that, uh, Grant. Interesting stuff. Uh, I don't see any questions as yet in the chat, so I'll start the ball rolling. Uh, once you've done your organising and your research, uh, I take it getting hold of the relevant uh, MSP minister um, has to be done in a certain way. You can't stalk them and get them in the pub type thing. Uh, I, take, I take it, do they have to talk to you? Um, no, they don't. Um, if you know, one of my concerns is things like party conferences and the number of lobbyists, or you know, we uh, lobbyists don't like to call lobbyists, we tend to call ourselves public affairs officers or executives or managers, or whatever. Um, they'll go to conference as well. Some of them will be members of parties so that they can go as a delegate. Um, as well, uh, as well as and or as a commercial representative. Um, and I've always been concerned that in, you know, comfy conversations in conference bars afterwards, people could, you know, talk to a minister and stretch onto things that actually are in their, their brief. Um, or worse still, a minister turns to you knowing that you're in that industry. So if I take the time when I was in renewables for six years, I would dread, I never, well, yeah, I would have dreaded if a minister turned to me and said, oh, by the way, um, see that wind farm stuff or Bewley Denny power line upgrade. Um, you know, what about this? Tell me about this, tell me about that. Now, if a minister asks, technically that's asking for information. So I'm not lobbying then because they asked me first. But to anybody who might've been overhearing the conversation, they would have thought, well, here's a neat little, cosy little relationship going here. He's a lobbyist. He's a minister. You know, it just must be, therefore, that they're up to no good um, and that they're using, you know, essentially back-channel um, communication to achieve something. Um, so it's, it's also about the perception, the optics of how lobbying um, takes place. So professionally, um, you should always set out uh, you should always approach, usually in writing or by email, that you would like to meet, what do you want to meet for? Um, if you're a consultant lobbyist, i.e. you work either as a freelancer or you work for a, P a public relations agency, you have to state who your client is. Um, or if you're in-house, you know, make it very clear that you are representing your employer. Um, and that would go in through ministerial emails or ministerial addresses. You can't write to... A minister through their parliamentary email because that is a constituency um, email address and even if you did staff in ministers offices automatically say I'm sorry we can't deal with that it's not a constituency matter I, I have forwarded it to the ministerial uh, inbox and then civil servants take it over from there and they deal with um, talking to the minister um, or sometimes they don't even get, sometimes they don't even get, get to talk to the minister it goes to a director um, and they'll decide whether that would be a, uh, an appropriate meeting for the minister to have and then allow that to then kick forward uh, if you think there's, uh, it's all 
either above board or, oh, actually, that could be quite interesting if they come to us and tell us about what they're doing or um, perhaps a solution they've got for something. Um, um, but they have to do, they do have to tell the minister, this is, you know, but we've had requests from, from everybody, um, but we're recommending you speak to them, but we don't recommend you speak to them. So the minister can overrule the civil servant and say, well, actually, I will speak to them um, for whatever reason. <clears throat> and, you know, my original reason I went back to uni was to look at the role of political affiliation and lobbying. Um, does being a member of a party help or hinder you in your lobbying activity? Some of the most successful lobbyists I know, um, one of them in particular, to this day, none of us know his political affiliation or his political views. He goes to every conference. Um, he's very fair in terms of how he deals with everybody and, and, and any of the organisations he's ever worked for. But I would say the fact that, you know, 80, 90% of lobbyists, I know their political affiliation. And, you know, some are very successful, some are less so because I know that, you know, the minister will never, you know, they might talk to them, they're never going to listen to what you're saying because they know where you're coming from. Um, and I've always said, less so now, because I don't do direct lobbying of ministers, but um, sometimes in, in renewables, when the minority government first came in, um, I found it harder. People, my employer and member companies in renewables all thought that I had this open door, open sesame approach, frankly. They never understood that actually the SNP ministers tended to be worried about the you know any idea of too much familiarity and cronyism, preferential treatment for party members. So I found it harder to get access to ministers to talk to them about anything. Um, uh, and I learned that you know learned along with other people that actually it was easier for me to brief. The chief executive and get him in the door than it was for me to get a meeting to talk about anything. Um, so I would use my board members and um, senior staff in the organisation set up meetings for them, but not either maybe attend the meeting with them or just you know push them in, let them go on with it, and hope that they you know. And most of the time they they are the great thing about some like renewables is it was you know we knew it was a for good type of thing, and the people we were putting in they knew the stuff better. Than anybody in Scotland. I mean, the civil servants didn't know anything about renewables. Um, and gradually, one by one, people from our trade body were it got employed by the civil service because the civil service didn't really employ people that understood renewables. Um, energy is not a devolved matter. Promotion of energy is. Um, so the people that were in that team tended to be brought, you know, general um, civil servants who. Um, came into this policy just because it was a manifesto commitment and they needed to deliver something for the government, um, but didn't really know how they were going to do it. Uh, does that answer the question? Uh, I think so, yes. Uh, there's a few others. Uh, Marlene, would you like to ask yours? Uh, yeah, so first one, first one was, um, I was just wondering, um, do Westminster or you know Scottish government ministers do they have to declare which lobbyists they've talked to? Um, they have to, um, yes, yes and no. no, not with the lobbying register, but with the, under the ministerial code, they have to declare whenever they, whoever, whoever they meet, um, that's an external body to parliament or the civil service. 
So do you remember when Boris Johnson went off to Italy uh, without anybody? Yeah, well, that was a broke the ministerial code because <laughs> he should have had a civil servant with him. Um, he made out it was a private party and it wasn't. They might well have was a private party, but they were going to do government business. Um, and that was against the rules. So a minister's not allowed to meet anybody unaccompanied um, where they're going to talk about government policy. And that's a protection for the minister as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, so that's why the minister would always get the civil servant to organise the meetings um, and then make sure that the appropriate, you know, whether it was a policy officer or a senior civil servant or just a junior, that somebody was there in proportion to the level of the meeting. That was yeah, being. and and that person, do they take they take minutes or something like that? Yeah. 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 And then they'll make a note. Um, so what often you'll get is political journalists will go through the published diaries of ministers and they'll go looking to see who they've met. And mm-hmm. some of them do, you know, analysis of that. And um, who's our favourite um, daily, is it Daily Record political editor, Paul? Um... <laughs> oh my goodness. He used to be at Holyrood Magazine as an editor and then you went to sales at Paul. Oh, Paul Hutchin. Watson is the kind of the type of political journalist, uh, and a, you know, frankly, he doesn't really, you know, he's a Labour journalist, but he'll do it to anybody. He loves, excuse me, exposing anything that's seen as being um, it's not transparent, it's not very clear, or here's lobbyist at it, um, and you know, so that's both for Westminster and for Scottish government um, that they have to note in their diaries. It's the lobbyist that actually has to record if they've met the minister in a register. And what I'm not aware of, and I I do know some journalists who've got a keen interest in looking at this around transparency issues, is do they try and uh, match up between ministerial diaries and the lobbying register to see if somebody has either not not registered, because that becomes a different story. Politician did all the work on the Electoral Commission and, and who was making donations to the Labour Party back in the first years of the, uh, and he found all the stuff about Jack McConnell's Red Rose dinners. Um, so, I mean, although he's a Labour journalist, he took no right. uh, prisoners when it comes to making a story to make his name. Right. Um, yeah. And and that thing about the revolving doors, <coughs> excuse me, is, is there now a length of time, you know, before someone can move into one of those jobs when they've given up being an MP or whatever? So it's not for an MP, but if you were a minister, um, it's one year now. So if you leave, and it's if you leave office, not when you leave being in Parliament. So <clears throat> if, um, and I'm sure she's not even thinking of doing this, but if Rosanna Cunningham wanted to um, go in and work for a, a corporation, she's now free to do it because her year as a minister finished in May uh, 2022. Um, so she'd now, you know, all the ministers that retired last uh, the Scottish elections, they could now take up that type of thing if they wanted to. Um, I have seen, the civil service had a year as well, but I've seen something about six months, a year, two years. So I think there's something that's proportionate according to the rule that you had within government as to how long before you can move into another area it might be something around it's a year to go and work in industry but it's two years if it's going to work for an industry that you had a direct engagement with in the role that you had yeah right so so there's 
Boris Johnson's going to have to wait a year then before he can start snapping up these lucrative jobs. Yeah, that's in theory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What, what Boris Johnson will do, which is what, where he made his money, not in lobbying, he makes his money on writing for the Telegraph, others. I mean, he yeah. got half a million before he became uh, foreign secretary. Well, I will. <laughs> Fiona, would you like to ask your question? Hi, yes, thanks, Grant. That, this is really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it, thinking, what can what can we do? <laughs> what can we what can we uh, what use can we make of this if we twisted it a little bit for our own ends? And I suppose the proper question is, what are the tactics that are most successful when it comes to lobbying? Uh, which is, I'm th maybe thinking of it as influencing skills, but perhaps there's a whole nother skill set there. No, I mean, you know, um, let's be clear. Um, one, you are a lobby group of, of your own. You wouldn't like to call yourselves that, but um, you know, most political groups, political campaigning groups are technically in political science, we would regard you as a, you know, you're a lobbying group. Although even political science is quite good at changing it into, oh, well, it's more activism than uh, what we call interest groups, which has a clear implied corporate interest to it. So even even in the kind of the spectrum of trying to make political decisions and who influences, there's a range between those that are good and those that are not. Um, and I'll give you an example. I, I used to be on the board of Friends of Scotland and at an AGM, I think it was about 2012, uh, they had a workshop bit and it was all about lobbying. They got a new kind of... Um, we got funding to employ someone who was going to explore Scottish um, companies that were um, uh, doing basically fossil fuel exploration, oil exploration in uh, outside Scotland. <clears throat> so we knew enough about what was happening in Scottish waters, but what were Scotland's oil companies, people like uh, Bowmore and Cairn Energy, what were they doing to exploit the world's resources that we could make them accountable for in Scotland? So, um, you know, good piece of work, good to get the finance and everything. But this guy had this workshop and there's about 40 people in the room. And he said, OK, stood up on a chair and said, if you believe that lobbying is bad, go and stand at that side of the room. If you believe that lobbying is good, go and stand at that side of the room. If you think it's something, you know, you can stand anywhere in the room to show roughly where you are. Well, you've never seen this mass run to the end where lobbying's bad. And I'm standing at the other end of the room. Um, and I'm going like, um, excuse me, I'm a lobbyist and I'm on your board. Um, and they're going like, ah, but you're you're lobbying for good. So, you know, I think the um, the reality is, yes, there's a lots of us who are, um, some of them still might not like to be called lobbyists, but I've never had a problem calling myself a lobbyist because I kind of know that's what it's much easier. It says what it does in the tin. Um, public affairs executive can be interpreted so many different ways for different people. And public affairs in America means public administration. That's a civil service type qualification if you're in public affairs there. So lobbying um, uh, or influencing um, is kind of the key to it. And the type of stuff that I've done uh, more recently has been with disability employment charities. Um, my um, More on a one-to-one Basis and more of it's around council rather than doing anything on behalf of it, um, an organisation. So the third sector is probably the biggest employer of 
lobbyists or people who influence in Scotland. If you were to go through the lobbying register of the Scottish Parliament, um, <clears throat> it will be for every um, for every hundred um, um, meetings that are logged, I can guarantee you about seventy percent of them will be from the third sector. And part of that, I think, one, they've got a lot of things they want to campaign on, so it's quite right. Uh, I do think sometimes, though, that I, as a someone looking at the the effectiveness of influencing and lobbying, I sometimes think that a lot of people are employed by managers in the third sector, charities, who don't understand what lobbying is. Mm -hmm. So they get told by their new employee, well, I've got 10 meetings with 10 MSPs coming up and I'm going to meet um, the spokesperson for this and I put in a request for the minister for that. And then it gets all logged out, oh, that sounds really good. And it's like, but what did your meetings with 10 MSPs ever achieve? What was that about? And is it not just a, a game of having your name in the register 10 times to make it look like you're doing stuff? Um, as opposed to, well, what actually did you ever achieve? That's a lot of time and effort you put into that. How could that resource have been best used? So um, I recently been working with an alcohol um, charity, uh, not directly with them, again, actually doing mentoring and coaching for a, a new member of staff who's taken on a public affairs role with them. Um, and it was looking at um, what is it that you want to achieve change by? Um, and, you know, what is, who's it that you need to communicate with? How have you thought about doing that? What is your message? Um, uh, all of these, these are just standards, um, anything to do with um, any form of professional communication. It's always using the basics of um, five W's and H's, you know, who, what, why, where, when, and how. Stakeholder uh, analysis and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think a lot of people now understand that process. Although, interestingly enough, even then, people do that, and then I'll say things like, oh, so what's your message? What is it you're trying to say? And it's like, and they take that as an obvious. And it's like, you've never, at no point in your little plan you've passed on to me, has that stated? There's an objective, that's great, but it's not telling me how you will communicate this objective. Um, and that's the big difference in communication is that you need to think about what we're saying and are we saying it consistently? Um, are we saying it authentically? Um, uh, are we going to get caught out as hypocrites because we're saying this, but actually we're doing something completely different? Um, that kind of thing. Um, and I think in tactics-wise as well, uh, it's also looking at, how to, how to get more bags for your buck. Now for your buck in this sense, it just means resource. Resource can be volunteer time as much as expense on a staff member or paying to do activities. Um, and so I've, what I've tried instilling both of my students and the people I, um, I've worked with, uh, if you've got an objective, how about trying to, to um, create activity or that you may actually achieve more than one objective. Um, so when I watched the Scottish Renewables, my annual plan maybe had six key things I wanted to do, but they were all about trying to tackle different communication objectives within the organisation as we went through the year. So one of them was we tried to, you know, we um, bear in mind a lot of this was designed when we had something like three wind farms in Scotland. Um, we tried to put wind farms, we tried, we tried to get the wind farm developers and owners to put their 
premises into Open Door Scotland in September and actually set up community engagement, public engagement at the wind farm to explain what the wind farm was doing, how it was working, because there was so many myths going on. And he said, you know, Open Door is a classic time when you would show that. You might open the bottom of a turbine and let them stick their head in and see how tall it is and how you actually climb up the turbine, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, obviously with permission from um, the, uh, oh, the energy regulator had to give permission for that kind of thing um, to take place. But, you know, you would look at that. So that would serve community engagement, uh, helping people to understand better about wind power and, you know, uh, give out information about how wind power works um, and countering some of the myths about what wind power does or doesn't do. Um, and then you might say, well, if you're doing that, have you invited local key political stakeholders or um, that if you're maybe going to extend your wind farm or a wind farm that you're creating nearby, why not bring some of the, the leaders there to your open day that's only five miles away or 10 miles away and let them see at first hand what's happening there? Um, and have you looked at, you know, how you can then publicize this, um, how you can gain media coverage for what you're doing as a way of engaging. So in doing that, that hit three of my objectives through one event. Mm -hmm. I had my political engagement and my community engagement and media coverage, which were different types of objectives in my, in my communication and public affairs plan as, as a staff member there. And you had to think smartly like that because, you know, I was, at that time there was five staff in Scottish Renewables. Um, and I couldn't deliver for an industry. I had to basically coordinate so that all the member companies were mobilized to do this stuff um, at the same time so that we gave the impression that the industry was responding to these things and was acting as one with a common message, etc. So that's kind of the way that we would we'd, uh, work on that. And most, I didn't say most, um, Scottish charities in third sector are very professional about this now. Because um, I know because a lot of my graduates are sitting in great jobs in the third sector um, and I bring them back as guest lecturers or on panels to, for the students to help them understand what their job is and how they go about doing that. Um, and yeah, and, and some of the most effective tactics are the lowest resource tactics. They don't cost a lot of money, but they sometimes need a bit of bravado um, so again, think of like, uh, well, get friends of the earth and Greenpeace less so, mainly because Greenpeace doesn't really operate in Scotland. Um, but friends of the earth are very good at doing this. If they were, they would um, uh, create, <laughs> well, they'd get their staff and volunteers to dress up, invade the Scottish Power um, annual general meeting. But they were clever, they bought a share, so they had access to the AGM by right. And then they'd go in and then they would, you know, disrupt it and um, make a statement, knowing full well that maybe TV cameras were there, or they'd tip up, tip up, tip off their favorite environmental correspondence to make sure the cameras were there. Scottish Power thought they were there to cover the AGM and the finances. They were not, they were there to cover the, the disruption that was going to take place. Um, and so from the, you know, been able to go to a second-hand shop and get suits. I remember there was five girls that did this, to get suits, and they, they drew on the little <laughs> moustaches as well, just to really make this point. They got numerous media coverage um, in Scotland and out with it um, for disrupting the Scottish Power AGM 
and making their point that Scottish Power had to come out of fossil fuels. They had to close Lunganet. They had to, you know, decarbonize Peterhead as well. It was like, you know, the, the clear idea of what they were up to and it made a very powerful uh, message. Now, my students think that they all need big budgets to pay for advertising on Facebook. And it's like, no, you know, you're on a PR degree, not an advertising degree. You can do this with nothing. Um, it's creativity that comes first and foremost. You see that um, uh, example of, I forget now what, what scandal it was down at Westminster, but they had a dozen guys outside the gates with Boris masks on having a tea party. And those masks probably cost a fiver for the total, you know, and that was on every single news all day. Really superb bit of work, yeah. It's, it's how you use media. Uh, so one of the things that, you know, people think of lobbying and public affairs work as something that's about secretly going in to meet the minister. No, it's not. Most of the best public affairs and lobbying campaigns also understand we live in a mediatized society how do you use the media in conjunction with the direct lobbying, activism, campaign work that you're doing as well? Mm. Bring the two together. And that amplifies your message through these media outlets in a way that you can possibly do by standing, or by you know, chanting outside St Andrew's house on your own type thing. So mm. what you do, you amplify it. You look for ways of how to get it done. Now, in the modern age, amplification is done a lot through digital and social media as much as through what's called earned media, the traditional legacy of print broadcast. Um, so it's, it's understanding your media landscape is hugely important as well. But again, it's not rocket science. Um, it can look daunting. I mean, I get scared when I hear about new platforms coming out and, um, oh, you know, for a while it was, oh, Gen Z need to only use TikTok for their news. And it's like, <laughs> you know, tooth, who the hell are Gen Z and what's TikTok? But, you know, I'll, I'll go and learn it because I'm still working. I need to understand these things um, and make sure to understand the terms that they're talking about. Mm. And also get people to justify, you know, how do you know that Gen Z, people who are born since 2000, actually take their news consumption from TikTok? And what do you mean by news consumption? Um, and then when you explore it, it finds out that actually um, the type of news consumption they take from uh, a short form video platform like TikTok is actually coming from legacy news uh, news outlets. So it's the Sun or the Mail or it's not something like the Scotsman or Herald, I have to say, not even the National. Oh no, the National is actually very good on TikTok. It's their little video clips that they're taking the news from. So it's not that the TikTok has a news platform, it's that news providers are using TikTok to get their message to a younger generation. Mm -hmm. I, and I had an idea, I didn't think, because you know, I started using TikTok, and uh, apologies if you don't know what TikTok is, I've never looked at it, but you can lose hours <laughs> looking at funny videos, watching people dance, um, reviewing clips of comedies from the 70s, you can lose a lifetime looking at TikTok, and I've, you know, sadly, I've you know, had far too long lives, three hours sitting in my bed looking at TikTok, um, and yeah. It's um, it shows how powerful it can be as well as a platform. That's good. That, that's thank you. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of information there, uh, Marlene. You've got one that runs into this. Your next question is. I um, am I still? Uh, yeah. So just just to follow up on it, kind of follows up a bit from what 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 you just said in response to Fiona's um, to Fiona's uh, question, but. Say pensioners for Indy had 
an issue that we wanted ScotGov, or at least SNP and Greens, to take up as part of the Indiref2 campaign. I mean, how would we best go about that? Um, well, um, so you do your little analysis. What is the issue? Um, I've got an example in mind, if that would help. But... Yes, I probably would actually. Just okay, so I don't be too distracted by the detail of it, but yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. Okay, so 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 the basic so the issue would be um, we we know that in two thousand fourteen <laughs> one of the big one of the big scare stories was affected um, pensioners was you'll lose your pensions, and and that age group well it's our age group that age group um, you know still not still not convinced. So likely to be another scare issue. So the so the, the what I would so, so we might we we could go we might go to Scott Gover and and say look, just take the feet out from under that immediately by saying now that you will completely cover, pay all Scott state pensions day one of independence. So there are some figures behind that that actually, but you probably don't need that for the moment. If that's that's. So um, thinking back to that kind of the first slide where we did the, the wiggle bit. So the issue analysis, and you said you got some figures, that's good because the first thing you want to start with is um, you need to have um, warranty around your claim. So what is the reliable figure that shows that people were influenced by the pensions issue in 2014, um, show that it was a problem um, in order to create the solution that you think you uh, need to do with it. Now, the solution to their um, assuasion, anybody about their pension fears uh, for independent Scotland might be quite wide and varied, and you might feel not the resource to do that, but we know that it was an issue, you know, here is, and even though it came out saying things like, 5% of voters in that referendum said pension was the number one issue that stopped them voting yes. That's still, considering we're now in a fossilised 40-40 and a 20% in the middle bit, that 5% becomes key. Are they, you know, do we know as well whether that 5% was fossilised in, is now fossilised in no, in which case maybe we'll never answer this, but you want to know that because what you don't want is someone coming back to you saying like, nah, we're not going to end with you because they're no voters and they're never going to change. So we're never going to win on that issue. And that'll be really hard to kind of hear. I would rather know the answer to that before I go into that kind of process. So I like to know what my, not just what I know and what I believe, but also how might it be countered? And I can know that now before I start to then work out how I'm going to uh, lobby, because I need to be able to counter how people will oppose me as much as how I want to promote what I believe in. Um, it's then going to come down to, as you said, an SNP Green coalition government. Um, so that's two parties that you want to make sure they're influenced, plus a wider independence movement who, again, will influence into those two parties, but who also have a tremendous influence within the movement full stop. Um, <clears throat> so you would, you know, the one thing that's very clear um, is Commonweal had a huge influence on the SNP manifesto for 2021. I mean, they were waving flags about how influential they had been 
Um, and in the 2016 one to a certain extent, but I don't think they were quite so clever on how they communicated how successful they'd been on that one. But 2021, they had a huge list of all their asks and they were ticking them off when they appeared in the SP manifesto. Um, so you know that some groups within the independence movement have somehow have a little bit more influence than others. Um, now, there, there's a lot more that's happened since then in terms of where Commonweal, as directed by Robin, yeah. where they now send, tend to be leaning, whether they've got the same clout, but, you know, they're still seen as a large um, membership group um, with a kind of political ideology that is influential. <clears throat> so I would, I would be thinking about, okay, I, I would want to see if they're up, are they going to be on board with us? And maybe they've got a solution. Um, I'd want to understand how the Green Party works in terms of its policymaking process, but also what's its views on pension um, and what's its thinking around that independence referendum. <coughs> and the same with uh, SMP. Now, in SMP, you've got different ways into it. You've got all your usual, as you probably um, appreciate this, that um, there's the whole kind of party this, uh, policymaking process through a party conference, but equally you can go direct to the lead person on pensions in the Westminster group, find out where they are at, what influence are they, you know, what do they think, um, do they support us, in fact they may be a good person to bring into one of your next meetings, um, because they don't have executive responsibility and a diary that's jam-packed through with going to things, and technically pensions is not a devolved, so there is no minister for pensions as such. Uh, in the Scottish Government. So it is very much a Westminster reserve and it would be good to hear, because I know the Westminster group, I mean, I should have said, it's part of the intro, I work two days with Alan Smith now, so I'm not doing so much in the way of consultancy, um, but I'm getting an insight now into how West, Westminster yeah. would be much more effective. Um, so I bring that into it, um, and then I'd be looking at who in the Scottish ministers is taking responsibility for planning for the referendum, um, I don't, you know, you obviously be clear that Mike Russell is the political director of the independence unit in the party, is a hugely influential person. And the, we also have a pool of civil servants who are working on this. So if any of your members are ex-civil servants, retired civil servants, um, or related, or, you know, have any connection to civil servants, then I would want to use them as well because Many times civil servants are the, sorry, one of the things I never said actually, here's a phrase that was used to me once. If you're having to contact a minister, it's because you failed to convince the civil servants of your solution. This, contacting a minister was a last resort um, lobbying tactic, tactic that essentially go through the policy, go through the civil service, get them on board, because they control government more than ministers ever have done. So it sounds a bit yes ministry, but it is true. Um, and certainly in my experience in renewables, that's exactly what we did. We I knew all our, we knew our director general, we knew our directors, uh, deputy directors, policy managers, and we made sure that as many staff moved on into that civil service because embedded in there, and what's one of the things my interest, interest is the embeddedness between civil service and interest groups in short life working groups. So ever a sticky, wicked, um, kind of wicked issue, 
let's create a working group. And, you know, it's usually got a mix of external organisations representing different things. So if it's Scottish Fuel Poverty Forum, um, or uh, there's been a lot of things just now around sexuality and um, how we look at, uh, the, you know, remember the, the whole hullabaloo over the census, not census, the, um, the um, lifestyle um, questionnaires that were going out to young people. Um, that was all done through short life working groups of experts from academia, from uh, interest groups, furthering certain causes as well as civil servants. You know, if ever you wanted something to get into that questionnaire, it was go through that channel, not go to the minister, because the ministers, right, right. frankly, are far too busy. And they tend to, ministers, unless it's in a manifesto, the minister's not really that interested in creating new policy on something that might be seen as being, uh, if you haven't got me a given, given me a clear solution, then... I haven't got the time to go looking for the solution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can understand that sort of a normal, you know, parliamentary kind of, you know, situation. But do you think that's different given that, you know, they've now pretty well, you know, opened the starting gate on, on the referendum? Yeah, so my my thinking is that the, the, the team of civil servants will already have covered a lot of these issues. Right. But that doesn't mean to say they're going to come up with a solution that you're going to be happy with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, they are going to Which... come up. One of their one of their papers, one of the papers that they're coming up with is is going to be about pensions, but of course we don't know what's in it yet. That's all really that's all really fascinating. Actually, hearing what you said there. Uh, thanks. It's great. And just we'll take the final one. Uh, Fiona, you'd made a comment. If you want to expand on that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, just the I was at a Commonweal Zoom um, a couple of weeks ago and they had, were talking about, you know, they as a group were lobbying and lots of groups do lobby. Um, and actually, in terms of responding to consultations of which there are millions you know, from the Scottish government and some of them, somebody came up with a suggestion just then and there. Why don't instead of we, us responding as Commonweal, why don't we have a club? And then we all individually respond to the consultation as individuals. But what the club's doing is making sure that, you know, giving them a place to discuss the issues or come up with their views or just share what consultations are on the go. And I thought that's quite clever because it's not, you know, it's not being dishonest. It's just using the system that's there, but perhaps using it in a, a more imaginative way. And I, I had a look on the uh, Scott Gov's consultation thing. They've got this site um you we asked you said we did and it's fascinating you know it's got all the open consultations and i lost a whole afternoon giving them information about what kind of food i wanted to see at a checkout because <laughs> it was ridiculous but i just thought what a, that's quite an, a way of influencing without necessarily it coming on behalf of the group but while still having the group involved so yeah. is that legit or is it oh, yeah yeah absolutely and in fact um um so it's normal with membership-based organisations um, to activate, mobilise your membership to put into any consultation. Um, so if you were in, uh, you know, let's take change it a little bit. Um, if you were in the Royal Society Prevention, uh, Protection of Birds, then if there was something to do with birds, as a member, you'd get an email or a letter saying, could you respond to the Scottish Government consultation? Here's our three key asks. 
here's some information to help you answer the questions they put in their consultation. They I mean they would go down to actually almost drafting an answer for you. Mm. And what they'd say is, feel free to put this in your own words, but please try to keep to the message that's there because it's powerful if you can get then 10,000 responses put in that broadly say something similar. It's less so if there's 10,000 responses going that started off something was similar in question one, but Jesus, it was nothing like that by the time you got to question six. <laughs> and it just became very confusing for the people trying to make sense of that. So you don't dilute your message. You do try to keep it as consistent as possible. Okay. And that lets you get through. <coughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, use that as much as possible. So the Constellation Hub is very similar to what currently happens um, with membership-based organizations. <coughs> Another thing on the to-do list to check for consultations. <laughs> no, if if you this has happened, oh, sorry. Um, if you um, tell your members, here's a phrase to use, and that's the only phrase you use, and you put it into the consultation. The way that the analysis of consultation responses does is basically say this is one point that was made <clears throat> um, backed up by 20% of respondents, but it becomes rather diluted because there's only one thing that you actually made a comment on rather than uh, answering all the boxes that might have been within a consultation. Mm -hmm. So um, there's this an argument over various Scottish government consultations of late where the analysis <laughs> got into being questioned as to whether it was um, fair or not because of the way in which respondent views were um, aggregated. Uh, now, all of these things are done with very strict methodology, but as in any science, methodology you can apply in any way you like to suit yourself. So. Um, you know, they were able to robustly defend the way they did it. Um, <clears throat> but others would say, but you could have done it another way. And it's like, yeah, we could have, but we didn't. Mm. Some of them had something like 15 responses, and that which <laughs> seems incredibly small number. Um, but there was some kind of, you know, qualification on the site that said, look, this is just, you know, this is just qualitative research. We're not taking this as being representative of, of what people really think, out there, which it couldn't be 15 people. Yes, all of it has to be qualitative because yeah. you're not determining the population in the first place and taking yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I think we should finish up there. I think, Grant, you're struggling now. I know. You've done, you've done remarkably well. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for that because it was actually um, a lot more fun talking about this than I thought about at three o'clock and I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to say today? Well, it's, it's certainly been very interesting and it's opened our minds to what's going on. And uh, as Marlene said, it's something maybe we should be looking at to, especially on the pensions thing, uh, to do something about it. But certainly thank you very much and thank you for struggling through. Thank you very much indeed. And um, all power to your elbows going forward. In the thank yes, thank you. <laughs> Uh, for the rest of us, we want to hang on for about five minutes uh, to have a quick discussion about uh, leaflets uh, and the financing of them. Uh, 